Hi, can everyone hear me? Am I okay, great. Well, I feel like I, I was going to introduce myself, but I sort of feel like that's been done for me. But I guess what I just will say is I'm quite nervous. Haven't done a big talk to a big room for a while, and I've just had a coffee, and I'm so like it might be quite. Uh, anyway, um, I think sort of as Natasha said, so I, I started ages ago in agencies in social media when social media was like MSN Messenger. Like that's how old I am. So the, I'm going to talk a, touch a little bit in talking about like short-term and long-term focus about the current like CPA crisis that everyone's enjoying talking about. But like, I feel like I've been through them all. Mes MSN Messenger hype, Bebo hype. Anyone remembers that MySpace was much bigger than Facebook for a long time, and now we're all disillusioned with Facebook. So it's just you know, and influ we're all a bit disillusioned with influencers at one point before this as well. So. Um, I'm going to talk a little bit about all of that. I also spent some time in a media agency. I actually started my career in a media agency in a digital one. And like literally all I got asked for like the first five years was like, do you buy pop-ups? Is it you? Are you doing pop-ups? And I was like, no, not me, but definitely some pe de definitely a little bit. Um, and then a social media agency specialist and then a creative agency. And then basically I went to a brand because if you wouldn't do anything good in social media like seven years ago, you could not do it in an agency because you couldn't speak to the right people um, and you just couldn't get anything done and everything was rubbish. So I moved to ASOS and I spent a really quite a long time there and now I'm at high. So basically since I've been at brands, I've always been in like a D to C business. And although ASOS and Heist are now very different scales and they've got very different products and actually quite different customers and certainly very different price points, um, lots of the marketing challenges, I think, when you're a D2C business are really common. And the number one is that you're fighting an establishment who have a retail presence. And even though they all don't want to be paying for all of their retail presence at the moment, it generates a certain base level of awareness that you cannot necessarily replicate without that footprint. And um, as much as I don't know how many of you are specialist marketers and how many of you do other jobs in the businesses you're in, but I obviously care about my brand a lot more than anyone cares about my brand. And if we think of the example of like Heinz Ketchup, which is one of the most loved brands there is, if it's not in stock in the supermarket you're in, you're not driving to another supermarket to get Heinz. You'll buy either no ketchup or you'll buy like the supermarket own ketchup or the slightly more expensive ketchup, depending on how ketchup snobby you are. So that's how much everyone loves your brand. And then you also have to remind them that you exist all the time because they're not walking around thinking, in my case, next time I buy some tights, I must ensure they're from heist. Like, just keep thinking about tights and heist all the time. Like, no one's doing that. They're like, oh, crap, I've laddered my tights. There's Marks and Spencers. So that's sort of the challenge that you've got in a D2C um, business, almost like regardless of who your customer is, what your market share is, like how much everyone loves you, all of that sort of stuff. That's what you're competing with. That's the baseline. And then I guess I, the last thing I'd say is I'm also now we're in the hard bit now. Like I worked in marketing and D2Cs when it was like the glory days when all you had to do was like stick in free returns and have like some nice Instagram imagery. And everyone was like, oh, my God, this is the best thing ever. And now everyone's got free returns and everyone's got Instagram. And we'll talk a little bit later about how Instagram is making us all very bland. Um, so it's, it's got like actually way harder um, than it used to be. And certainly I've had to educate myself a lot in the last like three, four years on, I would almost say like what would have been thought of as more traditional marketing. So lots more of the stuff, like reminding myself of lots more of the stuff I did at a creative agency. 
Anyway, so that's a little bit about me. Let's just start on this question by like acknowledging that short-termism has really been rising. Basically, every chart I'm going to put up pretty much was done by like Burnett and Field and comes from the IPA with the odd exception when I couldn't find one that they'd done pretty much because they're, they're the best. So uh, it's on the rise and it's also really bad from a marketing point of view. It, um, these charts are completely separate, but there's loads of charts correlating the fact that as short-termism rises, campaign effectiveness falls. Great. Um, so, and I'd say probably this, like certainly this factor is probably like not felt anywhere more than in the like VC backed online startup world. And the reason it's such a problem is essentially the idea that you focus on just what do I need to do to drive my sales today just sets you up to only ever under deliver. Like if you think about that over the course of the year, you've got what are my sales targets over the course, like this week, this day, this month? How much can I spend to get to my sales targets? So much of that is dependent on the market, the like demand that is in market at that point in time. So you don't have an awful lot of control. So, and you're not spending against opportunity, you're spending against demand. So you can't ever overperform because once you get to your numbers, you're sort of at your numbers and everyone's delighted. But you can underperform because it can turn out just that day, like it's really hot and nobody wants to buy tights, it turns out, when there's a heat wave in September. Like, so actually, you over the, whilst on any given day, it can feel like you've got your CPAs are performing really well or you're bringing new customers in through the door every day, actually through time, you only are ever really giving yourselves the opportunity to underperform if you are not spending against your opportunity, you're only spending against your target on any given day. So that's actually, like, that's actually the challenge we're against. Um, the flip side is, if you work in a, and I've, I've, um, I've come from ASOS where we had like a little bit more stability by the time I left because we were much bigger, but obviously I've joined Heif and I am very much in the position where I know, however, that if I don't generate my sales today and this week and this month, it won't really matter about what sales I thought I was going to generate next month or next year because there won't be any time to generate them. So that's sort of where the balance lies. And I think really like that, this question is worth thinking about in terms of like, how do we generate the sales that we have to generate today whilst trying to ensure there are some future sales coming and sort of dividing the idea up into like immediate sales and then your future cash flow. And certainly, I think when you're in a like small business where you don't necessarily have lo loads of money swilling around, I mean, even the big retail businesses, I don't feel like there's ever loads of money swilling around. But anyway, that actually being able to like think I might have done something that also makes the future easier does also give you like peace of mind through time which is quite nice where you don't like wake up wake up in a cold sweat every week being like oh I'm gonna have to look at my sales forecast again in the morning so that that's how I think about it and then in terms of thinking about and why do we all get drawn to just doing stuff about our sales today and nothing about thinking about our sales for the future also if all of you are really good at this and it's just me who really struggles with trying to do anything past like hitting my weekly sales target and bringing in the new customers that I need that week then the rest of this can be very boring but I guess like there are a few big things I think if you take like a step back and think about us as people which is always a good thing to do about your customers and then quite often we don't do about ourselves is think about like what are our cognitive biases that mean actually we don't really make good decisions every day because ultimately like building something for the future is about every day 
making the right decision for your brand that day, even if it's not the easiest decision, even if it means you have to have a really difficult conversation with you know, the rest of your management team or your boss or your investor or whoever that is. And the first one is definitely loss aversion. Like, I don't want to lose a sale today, even if it's going to cost me, I don't know, like 120 quid for the chance that I might get a sale next month or next year or next week that'll only cost me 40 quid. Like there's loads and loads of data that basically says all of us hate the idea of losing something and much more than we like the idea of future gaining something. So we're all like a little bit subject to that. And I think the second thing is we've also got this like information bias. Like we all, and we're all being asked to make loads of evidence-based decisions all the time. Um, and actually, short-term data is like readily accessible and very cheap, most of the time free. And long-term data is like incredibly hard and not cheap and like generally like very hard to access. So actually what happens is you've just only got access to evidence that is not necessarily useful to the question you're asking. And actually, if you're in a like if you're in the startup world, most of us haven't been in businesses that have enough historical data to actually create any sort of evidence base in the first place. So then you find yourself, if you've just arrived in a new business like me, you find yourself in every meeting being like, well, when I was at ASOS, or well, when I worked on Renault, or whatever, I mean Renault, not very applicable to types. But anyway, so we've got this like massive challenge of like really big data gaps and then a lot of data that like doesn't really help but also like an inherent desire and quite a lot of pressure to make decisions based on any information we can find um, and then also obviously as a startup and this is like something that I think is specific to being in startup something I touched on earlier is like you're in the business of survival like I said like if you don't make your sale today like it doesn't really matter how many sales you're going to generate in 2021 or whenever your business plan goes out to so that that's also really challenging and then the other thing that's worth thinking about is the digital platform so I touched on this earlier like, and Facebook especially I mean, when I worked in social media a little while ago, my, my space was still enormous and Facebook was like up and coming. I was like, it is not going to last, guys. I mean, I'm still hoping, like, may, maybe, maybe this year that's going to come true. But anyway, I mean, I think, I think they're doing all right. But I think what's worth thinking about is, like, how the Facebook model sort of interacts with the, like, particularly D2C, VC-funded startup business. Like, they had a huge amount, like they transitioned into being a business that needed to monetize a huge number of people and they had incredibly low costs and they let people into advertising that could not historically get in because the barriers to entry were too high, or like the cost thresholds were too high. So they sort of created this very low cost model which caused a lot of hyper growth in quite in lots and lots of businesses, which then raised a lot of money that all essentially like flooded back into Facebook. So it's a bit of a like interesting ecosystem and their role in it is not just being able to reach your consumer like they were monetizing at the same time as the whole sort of ecosystem was set up. And then obviously um, that sort of that initial cheapness has like fueled the constant I don't know how I feel like since I've been working at Heist I hear the like word letter acronym LTV CAC every 20 seconds from someone and that again is driven out of this idea that like your like lifetime value cost per acquisition ratio is like the only thing that matters and Facebook is part of the reason that has like come about and um, like side note it tells us nothing about growth. Your LTV CAC ratio could 
like if I mine could be a hundred tomorrow if I wanted it to be. It's just we would probably not be growing very quickly. And so I think it's quite interesting that's one of the things that everyone's like a real bugbear of mine that everyone's got really fixated on it because I'm like, well, to be honest, as long as I'm like breaking even and we've got new customers coming in and we're growing, like who really cares whether it's three or five or whatever someone's decided the magic number is. Um, I really hope there's like no one that I've been sort of pitching to for money in here recently. But anyway, um, but um, and I, it's also one of these things that we've sort of been through a few times. I like touched on it. Like now we're all like very upset about CPA rises. I feel like literally every time I listen to the glossy podcast, there's like a hilarious set of jokes about the Facebook CPAs at the moment. But like prior to that, we had like influencer hype. And now we're also not so keen on influencers. And then absolutely ages ago, we had the like transition of Facebook from being like, a free platform to an advertising platform and we were all very outraged then as well but I mean we seem to have gotten through it don't get me wrong I mean I sound like I hate Facebook I sort of do but Facebook Instagram Pinterest Google they are all incredible marketing channels like all of our customers are on at least two of those channels every day and they can work all the way across the funnel. Like when, um, when I was working at ASOS, one of, the, one of the luxuries of having loads of access to loads of really good long-term data was that one of the things we could see is that YouTube was performing the same way for ASOS as TV performs for like, other digital brands. And actually, I think one of the reasons, I feel like really weird, like really bigging up YouTube. But anyway, one of the reasons they're really underinvested in, actually from an advertising point of view, is because they don't respond very well to these very short-term last-click metrics. But actually, it's like super cheap and really effective from like a brand, depending on who your audience is, but like really effective from a brand-building broadcast point of view. Um, and they haven't really managed to crack that. And no one who would consider buying into them in a big way who could use them in a way that traditional brands use other broadcast media necessarily have access to that data why YouTube hasn't figured out how to disseminate this, I don't know, but then partly probably just because don't believe anything the big platforms tell you either, I don't think. Anyway, another sidebar there. Um, but I think, like, what is, like, what the real challenge is there is, like, moving beyond this idea of sort of last click. And I also think the other thing we have to think about is the reward systems that go into those platforms. Like, there is a reason that every... <laughs> that everyone sees lots of avocado on toast on Instagram is like essentially because we like breakfast. Um, and I think like this is, so I mean, this is my subjective sweep of the like Facebook Instagram ad library, but based on uh, 2018's best Facebook advertisers, like, I'm sorry guys, but this is so bland. And these are the best, like these are the best ones. These are on all the articles for being the best ones. And like one of the things we also know is that advertising's biggest hurdle is blandness. So that like 16% or 84% stat, whichever way you've heard it, is that like basically 84% of people either didn't see your ad or don't remember it was you that, that sort of pushed that ad out. And I really, this is something that really we noticed a lot at ASOS when we first started spending on Instagram is everyone kept being like, those ads are lovely from H&M. We're all a bit like, oh, that's not going to be working incredibly well for us, but probably for our competitors. So, and that's actually quite interesting because inherently we sort of conform to the metrics that the platforms tell us we need to for visibility. And by doing that, we reach more people, but we make ourselves much less visible to the people we're reaching. And that's actually really quite a difficult tension because the algorithms in the platforms do 
affect how many people your content reaches. So you do have to try and figure out some sort of balance there, a way of being distinctive whilst also being rewarded in a platform that you have no control over, which is very challenging. Also, just a little snapshot. Now that I'm in the underwear business, you also have to think about yourself in the context of your category. So this is my category. We've only got tights and shapewear at the moment, but small plug, lots more stuff coming next year if anyone needs underwear. Or um, intimates, if you're American, very challenging stuff on what to write on your website, by the way, if you work in the underwear category. This is all like this is what I have to stand out from. I have to, and this is something you really notice. Actually, quite interesting about the underwear interest industry is that you sort of have two camps of how people is, is and is predominantly women's underwear as well. So it's like you can be very, very, very sexy, one specific kind, but you can't be very sexy. All things can be very, very, very comfy. So broadly speaking, I'm like I have to like try and stand out in that world. Um, actually, lots of categories. There's not. Um, there's generally one thing that the whole sector is like very hung up on. Um, I know that like there's really good slide on BBH Labs about like how boring the finance sector looks and what a sea of sameness that is. If anyone's in like a fintech startup or anything, that's quite interesting. I think it's Tom Roach who wrote it. So actually, it's really. I mean, like this is. So you've got like the platforms trying to like control your creative output and your messaging and then you've also got to have in mind and what am I trying to do versus the rest of the industry and then the other problem actually if you're in underwear is that the platforms don't let you do anything they think is remotely risque so all the sexy stuff is immediately gone and everyone's just on like super comfy and it looks even more boring than this slide that I've put up so let's talk about creative I spent some time in a creative agency I will caveat not as a creative which I presume everyone has realized because my horrendous PowerPoint skills. But like, I'm a genuine believer that creative is the lever that you have in terms of both like your short term, your immediate sales, and then your long term growth. It can deliver on growth. I mean, evidence tells us that it is like the second biggest commercial drive you had. I'm sorry, I literally can't find a high res version of this chart anywhere on the entire internet. But basically, this says, apart from your market or brand size and share, which is the thing we're trying to grow through advertising, so we can't like immediately change it. Like your second biggest way to improve your ROI of your advertising is through the creative that you use. So really, like that is the lever that we've got. And I think, and obviously, even like even more as a startup, like you don't have a market share advantage as a small brand. So there's, the, I think, this like quite what seems like really counterintuitive idea that actually like the more mass your brand is, actually, for example, the higher loyalty effects you get, the more efficient your advertising is, because there's this idea of like social norming. So everyone's like, oh, I've got Nikes too. Like, I see them everywhere. That must be fine. And actually, one of the things that happened, I worked on Renault like a gazillion years ago when they were having a terrible time in the UK. And there comes a point where the percentage of the cars on the road falls below, and I can't remember what the number is, but let's say it's like 4% or whatever of the cars on the road, no longer Renault, you literally cannot sell a car. Like, you just can't sell one because they just have no visibility in the market. And what that does, like, unconsciously is everyone's like, oh, my God, I don't know, Renaults must be, like, terribly unsafe because no one's bought one, or they just must not be cool, not cool because no one's bought one. So, actually, it's sort of counterintuitive to what you think. Like, lots of us, like, work in like small brands, and I will say ASOS is huge in the UK, it was 
minuscule in the US, and we used to always be talking about ourselves in the US. We are like such a best-kept secret brand. Like the people who love us really love us, and because we're little and we do the same at house, and we're we're such a like good niche best-kept secret brand. That's not how it works. It just isn't. Like, if you are a best-kept secret brand, like, get everyone to tell their secrets immediately because it is not a good way to grow. Although there, you do definitely get, another side note, you do definitely get the advantage of novelty so, and maximise while you're novel. Like, that bit where everyone's like, oh, my God, you're the new tights company on the block. Like, absolutely milk it for all it is worth because it fades. You are not going to be exciting for making tights like three years after you first remade tights. That sort of goes hand in hand, I think, quite interestingly with all this like Facebook CPA discussion at the moment, because on the one hand, absolutely, like media costs are going up. And I don't know, again, they've risen on Facebook like 100% year on year or something in the last 12 months. But at the same time, as the sort of D to C market saturates a little bit, like the novelty of that market has worn off. And like the, the novelty that gives your advertising more effective, effectiveness doesn't exist the same way it did three years ago. So those two things are sort of happening at the same time. Like no one's that interested anymore. Like no one's writing headlines with the stories like the Uber of X anymore because it's just not news anymore. So that like novelty idea for that sector has really worn off. Anyway, back to creative. Um, I think what's interesting about creative, particularly when if you're, again, you're going out raising money and you're looking at your sales forecast every week and like everything's going into a model and you're like, and here are all my CPAs forecast out till the end of 2022 and my ROAS and I'm definitely very confident I'm going to hold it at this level. Note to any people with like cash who would like to invest it in our business, like we are very confident about all these numbers out to the end of 2022. But um like what's so interesting about creative is it's just it's really hard to quantify like it seems really like fluffy and like airy fairy and that is why marketers who i mean the survey last year we were like least trusted profession in the uk behind politicians i'm really hoping this year when the survey comes out we're above politicians or like genuinely i'm going to have to consider another career but um that aside, like, I think it's partly because we're really thought of as not being very commercial because we always want to talk about like messaging or branding or something that's not like LTV CAC so that we can talk about acquiring customers when actually it's not true. We are the most commercial people in the business. We are the people that are kept most awake by the sales forecast, maybe aside from the founders. I appreciate they've probably also kept awake by the sales forecast. But it's actually really challenging because it's really hard to explain sometimes that problem around distinctiveness and cut through and having an emotional connection with someone. And like, and that's one of the reasons like everyone else who's not necessarily part of that profession or is trying to work out, you know, whether you're actually going to like burn through all of their cash or not is really hung up on the stuff that they can measure in the short term. So like last click sales, what your lifetime value is going to be, what your cost per acquisition is going to be and how you're going to forecast those. So it's really challenging. There's a really good article on LinkedIn. I feel weird recommending an article on LinkedIn. But anyway, there is. And I can't remember who it's by. So maybe no one's ever going to be able to find this, even if they're interested. But um, writing about a conversation that a creative had with someone, basically saying, like, that guy would rather fail without getting his creative right, because he doesn't want that to be the way things work, than he would succeed by giving it a chance, because then it would have worked. And there definitely are people like that. There definitely are people who, if they're not going to be able to, like, fit it into their model or whatever, they just... 
they don't want to just at some point have a little bit of a leap of faith on the fact that you're going to connect with your customers and you know how to do that. And I think one of the places you really notice that is even now when for lots of people like your LTV cap ratios or whatever equivalent is used aren't really efficient anymore, they're still really powerful because they're trackable. And I think this sort of goes back to that information bias thing. Because I think there's almost this like unconscious thing going on where everyone's like, even though this number has gone from like 30 to 100 or whatever's happened, like at least I know it's 100. Whereas with the other things you're talking about, that could be anything. But what ultimately ends up happening, I'm uh, this idea that like, and it's most clear when you're buying on Google and like your brand search always performs incredibly well in PPC. And you're like, well, well, obviously it performs really well, but how do you think they heard about Heist or ASOS or Renault or whatever before they typed it into Google? Um, and it, like, what ends up happening is you sort of end up with this like last click model that gives you essentially an entire team of strikers. This is for my husband. But so anyway, back to creative. Like, what I do think it can do is create your creative. If you really think about how to connect with your customers emotionally, they can give you your short-term sales today and your long-term sales in the future. Like if you get noticed, if you make people feel something, like that is the hardest bit of the job. And like another side note, if you think about all those creative, uh, like Facebook ads I showed you, rational arguments do not make people buy anything, by the way. And then when they do make people buy things, they make them want to pay less for them. Like when you tell people why your product is £95, it makes them less want to spend £95 on it, which is weird, right? I mean, right at the very end, right at the point where they're like adding it to cart, like, yes, they definitely want to know that they're not going to sweat in it or whatever that thing is. But like for most of the time, like the consideration phase, before they're like adding it to the cart and they don't want to post-rationalize how much they definitely want some incredible shapewear, like you telling them it's £95 because you've spent like loads of money on like, moving technology from the fitness industry to the underwear industry, like it makes them want to spend less. It makes them want to spend like £65, which is not good. So the best investment you can make, even if you do like however much money you have to invest, is in like messaging that is going to connect with your customers. So with your creative teams, whether they're internal teams or external teams or freelancers or whatever they are, that is the thing. And in talking about investments, one last thing on this like aside from creative, if once you've invested a little bit in your messaging, you've got a little bit of money left, like invest in everything else that's difficult, which seems, again, really counterintuitive because you feel like you're getting the lowest returns, but you're investing the stuff in the stuff that you wouldn't have got anyway. So if you're online, I, and all my examples are just like generally for online businesses because that's where most of my experience is. But if you're online, actually getting a purchase is really easy. You don't have to get anyone to take their pajamas off. You don't have to get them into a shop, like none of that. Like you've probably got like a very slick payment system. So it's not getting a purchase that's difficult. It's brand building that's difficult. It's not research that's difficult. People can research a lot of things on the internet. I don't know if you've heard of this thing called Google, guys, but it's really good. 
but emotion is really difficult. Like loyalty is not hard if you're a small, like best kept secret brand, but penetration of your audience is hard. So you have to spend on all of the things that feel really difficult because they're the things that you are not going to get just by dint of existing or just by dint of having lots of PR. And it's sort of like it's sort of fit, that sort of feels all wrong. On the subject of incrementality, one last go at sort of bashing Facebook, and then I promise I'm done with them, is. Um, why are the Facebook sales objective uh, attribution windows set to 30 days? Like, really, if I'm talking about generating a sale today, like I really want it today, I will just say as an aside, we switched all of ours to 24 hours, and I would highly recommend it. Um, but like I say, not if you are, that's just if you want to generate sales. I'm talking about your sales driving campaigns. If you want to generate awareness, by all means, like have a longer attribution window, look at things over longer periods of time. But if you're, talk, if you're looking at things on a last click basis or last touch basis, like everyone in the world is on a Facebook platform, the fact they logged into it 30 days ago and then today they've bought something for you, the chance of that being incremental is not huge in my opinion. Um, so just sort of to summarise, you have to deliver your sales today. Like, I get that. I also have to deliver my sales today. Um, but remember that every pound you spend generating a sale today, you are not spending on ensuring a sale in the future, and you are not spending on your own peace of mind for the future. So get to your daily baseline, whatever that is, and then allocate every spare penny you have. And I would add, like, and every other resource you have, like every other bit of brain power you have, every other bit of, like, PR, like everything else that you can be doing, allocate that to the future, to being distinctive, getting on more people's radars, reaching as much of your audience as you can, thinking about how you connect with them. Data is really only helpful if it answers your question. Uh, and like in case anyone has not noticed, like I'm not sort of not super into this like last click, last touch attribution for everything. Like I really do think you end up with no goalkeeper in that situation. Don't forget that rational arguments don't make people want to buy your brand, and they make them want to spend less on it, even if they do buy it. So again, think about that when you're doing your messaging. And the last thing I'd say is that like your boss, your investor, your colleagues, whoever, the reason they care about Facebook CPAs, about lifetime value ratios, about all of that stuff is because they're not marketers and like they don't necessarily know any better. And I'm really sorry if I've just offended like half the room saying that. But the, what I would say to the other half of the room that I didn't offend is like talk to your colleagues about those things. Like there's loads of people who actually, if you try and explain what you're trying to do rather than just conform to what you're being asked to do, will listen to what you've got to say. Um, and then I also just did a second summary again by Burnett and Field because it's better than my summary and I thought everyone might like to see it. That's it. Thank you.